You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 42. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to Liberty Buzzard, the podcast for inquisitive minds. Today, we are not going to talk about anything related to Kavanaugh. Uh, We have made this promise to each other. Uh, The news is still alive. It is still kicking. And we are buzzards and we eat only dead, stinky carcasses. So Thomas and I... We want to talk about something that uh, is not necessarily at the top of the news cycle, but is actually incredibly important um, in true Trump fashion. I don't know if he did it on purpose. I don't know if it's an accident, but in true Trump, uh, Trump fashion, uh, he's pulling a, a rope-a-dope. This, uh, this U.S., Canada, and Mexico just reach a sweeping new NAFTA deal. We have NAFTA 2.0, otherwise known as the USMCA. That's right, folks. Trump pulled it off. He uh, had a stare down with Mexico and Canada, and uh, I, whether it was calculated or a complete accident, I think it's calculated, he got his way, which was a complete revision of the NAFTA. Well, I won't say a complete. It's an update revision of the NAFTA deal. We didn't get everything we wanted, but his extreme position allowed us to move the yardsticks. And I'm going to go down a quick list here, some of the high points that change. And this is actually from a Washington Post article that I think did a pretty good job summarizing the changes. Um, Here's a victory. Canada is opening up its milk market to U.S. farmers. This is a big deal because um, the dairy industry in the United States has been hurting for a number of years. Most people don't know this. But milk as a commodity, unless you are a very specialized uh, producer of some type of milk, but just regular old cow milk that we all see at the grocery store as a commodity, the advances have been so dramatic over the years. And uh, little farmers have been squeezed so far out because the prices are so low that the industry has been depressed. Yeah, and not just that, but there's also been a hit on the demand side. Yes, true. So if you go to this grocery store, there's all of these plant-based milks now that a huge percentage of the population has switched to. We have switched almost exclusively to plant-based milks. I only drink it, and my wife uh, predominantly drinks it. And that shift of consumer preference away from cow milk, which is difficult to digest. Only certain people with certain genealogical ancestries have the enzyme lactase to break down the lactose in milk into glucose. So most people historically were lactose intolerant and most in many ethnicities are still like predominantly lactose intolerant. So like breaking down milk is tricky and difficult and our bodies weren't designed to do it. We've kind of evolved the ability to do it, or some of us have anyway. And um, I'm not one of those people, so I don't break down uh, the sugars or the proteins of milk uh, particularly well. And there's a lot of people like me, and they realize that you know coconut milk or almond milk is almost as good and far easier to digest. And so we have had this surplus milk production. We're looking for places to sell it. And we're looking up at Canada and we're like, come on, Canada, let us sell you our cheap milk. And Canada's like, I don't know. And Trump's like, hey, if you don't do this, everything's off the table. And they're like, okay, okay, fine. Okay, c- continue with your summary. Yeah, so I mean, you, you, you hit it nail on the head. First of all, I'll mention that... Uh, uh, I drink milk by the gallon, and I think we go, my family, my big family, goes through probably about six gallons of milk a week. We spend a lot of money on on milk. I sometimes think that my family alone keeps the dairy industry afloat. That's neither here nor there. (laughs) The point is, Thomas, the point is is that uh, dairy farmers, uh, they tend to be Trump people. They're very agrarian. 
they're very rural and they have and they, they they trend not saying it's an absolute but they trend to be trump kind of people so this is a big win for uh trump's base and for trump people so it's a it's a pretty big deal and he took a big gamble here because uh they by staring down canada by increasing tariffs um they actually temporarily hurt the american milk and dairy industry and put them under a lot of strain and stress because of this but um with the new agreement it open up opens up a market and I, it potentially, as far as a political move, really solidifies Trump's agrarian base. Not that we're talking about millions of people, because obviously the dairy industry is small people, but still. Um, farmers tend to support farmers. Uh, other farmers are going to say, hey, this guy did a good job for the dairy industry, and it's really going to shore up his base. Okay, moving on. Uh, Canada got a victory. Um, the chapter 19 of the NAFTA agreement, updated agreement, allows Canada, Mexico, and the United States to challenge one another's anti-dumping. And for those who don't know, that means that means um, pouring loads of product into one market in order to reduce the price. So anti-dumping and countervailing duties in front of a panel of representatives from each country. Um, and according to the Washington Post, this is generally a much easier process than trying to challenge a trade practice in a U.S. court. So basically, uh, Canada and Mexico uh, have an expedited route to challenge a trade disagreement. So they're, the Washington Post is classifying this as a Canada's victory, I guess. I mean, I think it's kind of victory for everybody. Um, an expedited process to, to go around trade disputes, I think, is a good thing. So um, go moving on. Mexico and Canada get assurance Trump won't pound them with auto tariffs. So, President Trump has repeatedly threatened to slap down uh, uh, any cars, vehicles that are made in Canada, and especially Mexico, with huge tariffs. And with the new agreement, um, the uh, Trump administration is backing off from any threats of tariffs and uh, the, the threat of further trade war, uh, theoretically anyway, is gone. So that's a big win for Mexico and Canada. It's a big win for those markets and the uncertainty of those markets. So I think you got something to say, Thomas. Yeah, there's also something that he did with automobiles for a uh, car to be eligible for NAFTA. I believe the percentage of how much of it is made in the United States or, or somewhere in North America, either Mexico or Canada, has shifted from, I think it was 62% before to 75% now. Sometimes what would happen is Toyota would send, you know, 30% of a car uh, to Mexico and the Mexican workers would do the final 70% of the work. And then it would be eligible for the free trade exemption. And that loophole has uh, been closed somewhat where now more of the car has to be built in the uh, North American free trade zone. All right, moving on. Uh, the steel tariffs it was not resolved with the new uh, with the new agreement. So we still have a disagreement over steel and the importation of steel, especially from Canada. Uh, not resolved. I think they punted this one uh, further down the uh, the field, and they're going to hash it out later for the sake of a uh, more comprehensive agreement now. So. Nothing's going on with steel. So if you depend on steel, it's still a tricky situation. Go ahead, Thomas. Yeah, I, th I feel like this steel tariff really hurts us because we use steel for our own manufacturing. So the United States does a lot more manufacturing of final products than we do of constituent components. We don't make a lot of things in the United States that then get shipped to other countries to be finished. 
often projects start in other countries and they're finished here. And so we are using that steel and turning it into things like aluminum cans, steel and aluminum. So we, we don't use steel for aluminum cans. We use aluminum for aluminum cans, but it's making that cost go up and it's hurting American manufacturing. So I don't feel like the steel and aluminum tariffs, I, I'm not a big fan of tariffs in general. I realize Trump's trying to use these as leverage to get concessions out of people because countries really take their steel manufacturing really seriously. Uh, but I feel like he's really hurting domestic uh, production with these tariffs. And it's it's too bad they're not being lifted uh, under this new USMCA agreement. I guess what you have to really look at is, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? So, you know, we're, we're, we're putting pain on our own selves, just, just like you said, uh, because we're putting these tariffs up that is actually hurting our own manufacturing. But is, you know, do the ends justify the means, I guess, is the real question. And if at the end of the day, just like in the dairy uh, dairy production, we open up a market, we gain more in the end, then it could be worth it. So, you know, are we shooting ourselves in the foot for no reason at all? Or, you know, are we um, are, are we doing something that's painful in the short run for a, more, a benefit in the long run? So I guess that remains to be seen. Um, so just a couple more uh, run down here before we really get further into it. Improved labor and environmental rights, um, increased intellectual property protections. I'm just kind of reading the headlines here. Yeah, th- this is a big one actually because uh, back when NAFTA was originally signed 25 years ago, the internet wasn't really a thing. I mean, it existed, but it wasn't a part of people's day to day lives. Day to day people weren't day to day using the internet. They weren't dialing into AOL for the World Wide Web. It's still very fringe. So there's a lot of trade aspects of the internet that need to get addressed. There's 63 pages in the new agreement on this sort of thing. I haven't gone through them, but one of the things that it does talk about is domain names. And it's important to acknowledge the existence of the internet in these trade agreements. I, I don't know, though, if these are good agreements or bad agreements. Uh, we're they're this is still in negotiation, and um, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but this isn't law yet. It still needs to get ratified through Congress, which may or may not happen, but this is the agreement as we have it. Okay, big drunk, big drug companies. That's hard to say. Big drug companies gain more footing in Canada. Uh, this is going to be a big win for the mega pharma companies here in the United States, like we like to have them. U.S. drug companies will now be able to sell pharmaceuticals in Canada for 10 years before facing generic competition. So we all know the, that uh, Americans love to go to Canada. They love to go to Mexico for cheap generic drugs. But it looks like uh, that is being reined in. They are going to hate this in Canada. I feel really bad for Canada. They are going like this of all of the provisions we've talked about so far. This is the one that's most likely going to hurt regular Canadians like your regular person who's been going to this store and getting a prescription and it was, you know, $15, 15 Canadian dollars to fill the prescription. Now it's $150 to fill the prescription. That old lady who's been buying that medicine is going to be super unhappy because she has to pay American prices for drugs. I, It'll be interesting to see how that sells. Uh, this might cost Trudeau his job. Uh, I, oh, I, I'm surprised they yielded on that. There has to be some understanding of the immense economic pain that the United States of America can bring to bear on any country in this nation. 
Uh, if you want to know why Iran is squawking so much about economic sanctions, yeah, are they concerned about economic sanctions from Europe? Sure. But uh, does Europe as a whole, does the EU as a whole have even a fraction of the immense power? And folks, when I say immense power, I am not, this is not hyperbole. The absolute immense power of the American economy. Because we talk a lot about our military and how strong it is. We talk a lot about you know the greatness of our philosophies and our constitution. But let there be no doubt out there. It is our economy that makes us the powerhouse of the world. Just like it was the British economy, along with the British Navy, that made the British Empire the uh, powerhouse of the world. Uh, the almighty dollar. It rules. Don't ever discount that. All right, one final provision I want to talk about because I think this is brilliant. So you know how we've talked about on the show in the past that no one agrees with Trump on trade. He he is in a party all by himself when it comes to trade, uh, especially with being against free trade. So the Democrats are kind of sort of for free trade. The Republicans historically have been very for free trade. Trump has brought a very different attitude, a very different approach to trade to the party. And he's won people over. And a lot of Republicans now you know, agree with Trump on trade, but they wouldn't have because Reagan had a, the exact opposite view on trade. And a lot of Republicans agreed with Reagan on trade. So a lot of people aren't really like they don't have their own opinion. They just kind of follow what the leader is doing in the party. And that's definitely true on trade. And what Canada and Mexico have done, which I feel like is brilliant, is that the deal is automatically going to be reviewed as soon as Trump is not in office. So in six years, they're going to renegotiate NAFTA with the next guy or girl, woman, and whoever that is, they're not going to be on the same page as Trump because he's not coming at the head of some intellectual revolution on trade. He's the only one, really, who has his specific views on trade. And so this agreement, while it's very big... And, and may be confirmed because it's a real hassle to renegotiate these things. And he has six years to build up a following for it. And they, Canada and Mexico are going to have a really good shot to renegotiate this uh, come the end of Trump's presidency, assuming Trump gets reelected. So the agreement is reviewed after six years. So the agreement's assuming Trump's going to get reelected. And if he gets reelected, they want the ability to renegotiate it. Post and with a post-Trump president, and it's an interesting point, Thomas, because the Washington Post, um, yeah, it says it, it categorized that provision as a compromise provision because uh, the President Trump wanted the ability to renegotiate the deal frequently because as a negotiator, he always wants to be able to be flexible and uh, change what he wants when he wants. Um, so yeah, I mean, but you brought up a good point. Sounds like Darth Vader. I have changed our agreement. Pray I do not change it further. <laughs> But it'd be interesting to see because, yeah, it's, it's not eligible uh, for review for another six years. So and that will be after Donald Trump leans office. So, yeah, it will be renegotiated. We'll, we'll see if it sticks. So there is one element of this agreement and everyone is kind of writing it off as something stupid and they're kind of treating it as a joke. But I think this is the one thing that will stick and it represents a shift that Trump is a part of. So while Trump's protectionism and his trade barriers, no one agrees with him on that. There is something that he has a lot of agreement on, both in the United States and abroad amongst regular people. And that's this concept of nationalism as opposed to internationalism, the national community as opposed to the global community. And the change of name is really important for Trump for this symbolic reason. He doesn't believe 
in by our multilateral agreements with you know geographic regions. So this isn't, or it will be no longer the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. It's going to be the agreement between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, which is uh, a, a shift from uh, global community thinking to a visas agreement between sovereign nations thinking. And I do think that Trump is on kind of the edge of this. We've had this huge wave of globalism that started after World War One. Uh, really got going after World War II, and every decade globalism has gained over the previous decade, arguably. And I feel like the tide is now going in the other direction, and the tide is now going in the direction of nationalism. And I think that this new name represents that shift in tide, the sea change, if you will. And it will be interesting to see the ramifications of this, because uh, globalism has been really great for our economy and for the world economy. You know, the number of people who are able to live off the planet is higher than it's ever been before. The you know percentage of people dying of starvation is lower than it's ever been before. Globalism has been really good economically, but not everyone has been winning and not everyone has been winning to the same degree. And a lot of people want their country to win. <laughs> they want to root for their country's soccer team at the World Cup. They don't want some like, oh, it's the North American team. Nobody gets excited for that. Nobody gets excited at the Pro Bowl for the, uh, you know, the or at the, uh, you know, where it's the players from one league playing at the players of another league. People don't want to root for uh, the league. They want to root for their team. And most people see their team as being the United States and they want the United States to win. And Trump really taps into that. If you're the kind of person who wants the United States to win, uh, most likely you're a Trump voter. Um, it's an interesting dynamic because um, there has been a tradition, I think intellectually, largely academically, that nationalism is a bad thing. And uh, I think if you took a look at it historically, you could make an easy argument for that because nationalism in a lot of ways, looking out for number one, created a great many conflicts, huge conflicts. We're talking about World War One, World War Two. These were all acts. I mean, it, it, it's an oversimplification, yes, um, because there was a lot of subtlety there, but they were in, in, in large effect, they were acts of nationalism, you know, Germany versus France. Britain versus Germany, Germany versus Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was me in mind. Basically, Germany versus anyone Germany can go to war with. Or I mean, in the, in, in the East too. I mean, it was it was Japan. It was Japan versus Korea, Japan versus China. It was it was me and mine versus you and yours. Uh, nationalism in a in a in a very simplistic way is just another form of tribalism. And of course, if you look at the national political discussion today and the international political discussion it um in in a great many ways has gone away from the globalism that we've experienced over the past two decades and we're kind of seeing a resurgence of nationalism britain and brexit um and of course you know I, this is all following the great economic collapse of 2000 2007 2008 and the fiscal problems that come along with it when everything's going great it's 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 kind of like it's kind of like a relationship, Thomas. You know, in the honeymoon phase, and you all love each other, and everything's going great. Um, it's easy to love somebody, but the rubber really hits the road when things go bad. And so, in my you know very uh, uh, amateur opinion, 
Um, I think this is that that 2007-2008 crisis, we're, we're seeing the after effects of the nationalism still today. Um, the whole MAGA concept, make, make America great again, is a very nationalist concept. You know, focus on us, focus on me and mine. So, um, you know, I can't say I... Let me, let me finish my point real quick and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Thomas. I, don't, I can't say that um, I don't have those feelings because I do. I'm a very, very proud American. But I also recognize the danger there in a historical context, historical framework, because I do recognize that nationalism taken to the extreme does equate to world war. So uh, I hope it doesn't go too far, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I think that people who are very nationalistic don't understand why people fear nationalism. They think it's because they hate America or they hate England. And that's why they're promoting this global community or they're trying to bring in a one world government. And I think that it's important to understand the other side and what they fear. And there's this historical understanding uh, that you often hear his historians talk about that is uh, the wars make the state and the state makes wars. Yeah, so what does that mean? If you look at the emergence of the nation state, whether it's France in the 1600s or England a little bit later than that, um, or actually a little bit earlier than that, what makes the state exist is often the fact that they fought a war with their neighbor. And that war creates a sense of us, this and them, this. And it's very hard for us as Americans to think this uh, in any way other than that. But it used to be a, a time when your primary allegiance was to your tribe or to your family or to your city. And which country your city was in was not all of that important, right? It may be part of this empire, this century, and this other empire, this other century. But primarily you were a... Uh, person tied to that specific city. And we still see that in Africa. So Africa, the nations of Africa weren't created the same way the nations of Europe were created through conflict and war and fighting over borders. The nations of Africa were created by Europeans who pulled out a map and drew lines and squares uh, and followed rivers and created the nations for the most part. Uh, at least that's how they were initially created. And because African countries, for the most part, haven't been going to war with each other, they often don't have a sense of national identity uh, that's very strong. Somebody is in Nigeria, uh, for instance, their identity is much stronger with their people group than it is with the nation as a whole. Because there's three very different people groups, three major tribes in Nigeria and a lot of lesser tribes. Those three major tribes have three different religions. And they don't have a sense of Nigerianness as much as they have a sense of their kind of tribal identity. And part of the reason they haven't, but there are wars and there may be conflicts in Nigeria, but it's not between Nigeria and a neighbor. It's between these tribes that are fighting over each other. So just because somebody drew a map and there are, you know, structures in place to keep those lines on the map uh, the way that they are, that doesn't mean that the people actually living in those countries care about that. <laughs> they don't look at your globe. They don't care what color their country is. And they may not even identify with the color blotch that they are living in at that time. Uh, now, I will say, as African countries fight wars of independence in civil wars, I, I do feel like they get a stronger sense of national identity. So like Sudan and South Sudan, I think, have a stronger sense of national identity because they fought to make 
their nation shaped the way that it is. And for people who don't like war and think that war is bad for the economy and it's bad for humanity, uh, the uh, growth of nationalism is very scary because they're like, oh no, the state makes war and war makes the state. And this greater sense of national identity and the sense of us and them is going to inevitably lead to war. And I don't know if that's true. I mean, historically, states make a lot of war. <laughs> and that that is true. But I don't know if it is an inevitability. I, if we can have a greater sense of national identity without that leading to us going to war. I, I feel like the United States, at any rate, as long as we keep good relations with Mexico and Canada and a strong Navy, we don't have a whole lot to fear from the rest of the world because they can't get there from here. We have this wonderful geography. Um, but I will say when it comes to nationalism, I have a as much of a strong identity as a Texan, I would say, as I do as, the, as an American. The, those in my mind are equal, maybe even slightly stronger as a Texan. Uh, so, you know, each person individually has a different sense of, you know, who their community is, who their extended family is. And not everyone thinks in terms of nations. And some people think their nation is Texas, not the United States. Or there's still some people who think their nation is the South and it will rise again. I haven't run into many of those people uh, lately, but back in the day, I think that was more common. <laughs> so uh, sometimes people's identity are with nations that no longer exist. You know, Prussia will rise again. I, I doubt it, but, you know, perhaps there are some people trying to make that happen. So, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to turn down the dark road because we're already 26 minutes in right now of warfare and skin in the game and nationalism. I, we'll have to save that topic for another time, Thomas, because, uh, you know, I, I, your point is taken. Your point is duly taken. Um, it's just nationalism uh, is correlated with warfare. It's not necessarily the causation although I think the argument could be made that it is the causation. Uh, more often than not, I think uh, warfare is a direct result in the modern era uh, of, a bunch of, uh, of a bunch of people with no skin in the game who say it's easier to send somebody else to war than it is to go myself. So, you know, if it was a emperor who was going to mount a horse and go off into war, uh, maybe, maybe have a little more skin in the game. But that's neither here nor there. We'll save that for another time. Thomas, I want to bring the most important aspect of this whole NAFTA 2.0, this whole NAFTA rewrite into perspective, and that is the new name. Um, as written in the Washington Post, goodbye NAFTA. The New Deal will be known as the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement or USMCA. Trump, who had long disdained NAFTA, has suggested has suggested that he might call it the USMC in honor of the United States Marine Corps but in the end United States or USMCA won out I got to tell you Thomas there's days where I absolutely despise Donald Trump when he gets on the, the Twitterverse and he just says the stupidest stuff there's days when I'm thinking he is an absolute genius and he deserves my vote nevermore then a day like today, when he names the entire NAFTA after the United States Marine Corps, man, Donald Trump, I got to tell you, I think maybe that in itself won my vote. 
Uh, and that is how democracy works, ladies and gentlemen. People vote for all kinds of reasons. I am just very thankful it wasn't the USMC because that would have been so confusing. There's enough acronyms out there that stand for multiple things. Sometimes it's nice to have things uh, that are unique. I, I will be curious, though, if USMCA takes off because it's a longer acronym and you can't pronounce It's not a word. So NAFTA... No one, no one ever says the NAFTA agreement. They say NAFTA as a word. Whereas USMCA, you can't say it, right? USMCA, you have to say it all out loud. I don't know if I don't know if the name will stick just because it technically has changed the name. Just because a politician says something is called the Affordable Care Act doesn't mean everyone won't call it Obamacare. <laughs> so uh, Trump may fail at renaming this agreement and it may fail to pass Congress. Uh, we, uh, that remains to be seen, but we do want to hear what you think. What do you think about the changes to NAFTA? Are they good changes? Or are they bad changes? What do you think about trade? Leave us a comment. Uh, we're on Facebook. We are on YouTube. And then, of course, LibertyBuzzard.com. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com.